Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. We will kick things off here. Thanks for making it back. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, ate enough turkey and pie and all of those fun things. We today, as you can tell from the handout, we're on Acts 9-ish and we're going to maybe get through 11-ish. Um, we've kind of run into, and I've said this again, that kind of the thought breaks and the chapter breaks aren't really lining up very well here. Um, and I try to keep the title on the handout rather simple. So rather than just saying Acts 9 again, like the last handout, um, I decided to do 9-ish and we're going to, we're going to kind of cruise through this. Hopefully we'll see what the reality really is. But um, we can maybe get through 11-ish because this whole section is really dealing with one big topic. And that big topic is the next big step in the story of, of the book of Acts. And that is the gospel going out to the Gentiles. And we'll read a lot more about that in like the rest of the book of Acts, but this particular section is really where that big jump happens. And it's not a, it's not an easy jump. Um, we have a hard time understanding this because we live in our time in our world. But again, if you could try to put yourself back in the lives of the people there, that division between Jew and Gentile was was everything. I mean, this dictated how you lived your life, the people that you hang out with, the the lifestyle that you have. It it was a deep cultural rift between these two groups. And so for the gospel to go out to Gentiles and for people to understand that the Gentiles are on the same standing as Jews, that they are all part of one family, God's family, and there's not a distinction between them. This is really a difficult and challenging idea. And so we'll see that that idea first gets the green light. People get it with Jesus's help, with the Holy Spirit's help. But what we'll find out is that even though it happens here, that the gospel first goes out to the Gentiles, the early church is going to continue to struggle with this. And this is going to create some of the conflicts that will remain not only in the book of Acts, we're going to talk about the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council in a few chapters that was dedicated all to this topic, which we sort of thought was already solved. But then if you go on to 
to Paul and to some of his epistles, you find that this distinction still existed outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, among the diaspora of Jews that were uh, uh, spread all throughout the Roman Empire. Because they had done such a good job, the diaspora, Jews that were planted in all these different cities far and wide in the Roman Empire, they had done such a good job of maintaining their own uh, community, and identity. And now for this guy, Paul, to come in here and say, like, those borders that you created, they, they don't exist. That, that is not what God is calling us to do. It just, it created so much conflict and had, a, they had a hard time dealing with that. So this happens here in this section. But before that, The transition is in Acts 9, verse 31. Last time we talked about the conversion of Saul and how this was going to be one step to bringing Gentiles into the church because we know that later on Saul, Paul, will be the big missionary to the Gentiles. So we now have Paul in that position. He is uh, now a follower of Jesus instead of a persecutor of him. Um, and, and yet he just, he heads off, off the camera view for a while. Um, he goes to Tarsus at the end of verse 30. But at 931, it says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You can probably parse every single word here and say a lot about it. A couple of big things. One is that even though this is a really long sentence, um, the big idea here is that the church multiplied. This is interesting to me just because of the choice of the wording. It's not the churches multiplied, but the church multiplied. That that there is only one church. This is throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Remember, we already talked about what a big deal it was that now Samaritans are part of the family, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And here this is communicating again that idea of unity, that there is only one church throughout all of those different areas, and that is the church of God. These are the people that gather around God's word and they are that family. And again, in our vocabulary, we always have to be reminded of that because church often is a place and there's this church and there's that church and there's another church and there's a church that way. And all of these are different churches and they all, you know, do things a little bit differently. And That would have been true in their day as well. In different cities, they might have slightly different practices. In one synagogue, they'll do one thing. In another, they'll do another. In one home, they'll do one thing. But Luke is saying, church. This is all one church. There is that unity and there is peace. The last time we talked about the church at the the beginning of this chapter, well, it was a little bit earlier in chapter uh, 7, 
We talked about how there was a lot of fear in the church because great persecution broke out and people were spreading all, all throughout the area because they were trying to get away from that persecution. And we learned that one of the greatest persecutors was this guy named Saul. But now Saul's not persecuting the church anymore. He is part of the church. And so with the conversion of Saul, the persecution is dialed down again, and there's peace. It kind of shows you what a big player Saul must have been in orchestrating all of this. And maybe people heard the stories. We talked about how people knew about Saul and they were afraid of him. But now people are hearing other stories about how Saul is now one of them and that might have caused some of those who are persecuting to, to stop and slow down and think. There's, you'd think there's probably a million stories Luke could have told in this one verse, 931, but he just summarizes it and says that there was peace and the church was being built up. We're going to talk about next how Peter is going around. He's now leaving Jerusalem. Before people were leaving Jerusalem because they were afraid. This was kind of like the epicenter of the Jewish authorities and they wanted to get out of town because it wasn't safe there. Well, now there's peace and now the apostles, Peter specifically, they are leaving Jerusalem. And what are they leaving to do? To build up the church. How do you think they were building up the church at that time? What, what sort of things did they do? Proclaim the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Baptizing. Con confirming the story. Remember that, that the apostles, they were the eyewitnesses. So Philip, he'd already been to some of these places. We heard about him earlier. And he proclaimed the gospel and brought the gospel, for instance, to Samaria. But when some of the apostles have the chance to come, they get to be that eyewitness. Not like, oh, you heard from Philip about all this stuff. Well, you know, Philip wasn't there. He didn't see all of it. So he's just kind of, but, but now that, that Peter is there and the other apostles are there, they get to be those eyewitnesses to tell the story about Jesus, to tell about it in great detail. They have leisure. They don't have to rush uh, because of fear of being kicked out of one town to another. They can teach in the synagogues and they can not only the gospel's already out there, but they can help plant and root that church down even deeper because they now get to hear firsthand. We remember that the gospels at this time are not written. Those aren't written until like the end of the lives of the apostles. Before that, the best way for the message to get out was that the apostles went out. They were the gospels to all of the people, and they would tell all of their uh, stories about Jesus, everything that happened, and, you know, could answer questions and whatnot. But this is how the church gets built up, that that word of the Lord goes out. And the people were walking in the fear of the Lord. Again, uh, another way of saying that, that they had that faith and trust in the Lord, but they also had the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
uh, again, that, that assurance and the affirmation that the Holy Spirit is working in the whole church and bringing them all together. So that transition after Saul's conversion, a transition from persecution to peace, again, reminds us in the early church that there was not always persecution as a constant pressure against the church. It tended to be more sporadic and isolated. It it is not until much later that there is more of a systematic kind of persecution against the church. Um, So they were able to, to get out. They were able to bring that message. So the transition now is what happens when there's peace. And specifically, the story focuses in on what the apostle Peter was doing. I have um, a multimedia presentation today. Uh, I don't know how well you can see all of the individual things here, um, but it'll give you a general idea of what's going on. So down at the bottom, we have the, the Dead Sea, and then the Jordan River flows up, and so Sea of Galilee is just at the very top of the map. Uh, that's Galilee, Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up, Jericho here just west of the Dead Sea. And so this is where most of the action was at the beginning of the early church. And then we heard about Philip. As persecution breaks out after the martyrdom of Stephen, that some of the disciples of Jesus start to get out of town. And we heard about how Philip is, um, first he goes to Samaria. Samaria is north of Jerusalem, but then he's headed out and the angel brings him down to the region of Gaza. Uh, remember, our Ethiopian eunuch is leaving Jerusalem. He's headed out of town and Philip catches up with him down at Gaza with a little help of the Lord, the Spirit who brings him all the way down there. They have that conversation, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch as he continues on his way home. And then we heard about how after this, Philip goes north and he went to the city of Azotus, which is Ashdod. So he's going along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and he goes to Ashdod, And then after that, we found out that he went to Caesarea, and there we left him. Like I said, we'll pick up with him a little bit later. We'll hear about him. But while he was going back up the coast, Luke tells us that he spread the the message. He preached the gospel everywhere he went. So he's already basically covered the whole coast. The word has already gotten out. This is, this is not going to be brand new stuff that in Acts 9, we hear about Peter leaving Jerusalem, and he's going to hit a couple of these cities, uh, Lydda and Joppa and Caesarea. And all of these cities they've already heard the gospel. The gospel's already been proclaimed. Philip was probably that one because we know about his ministry. And Peter's not here to proclaim the gospel for the first time. He's here to build up the church, to strengthen them, to comfort them. And so the first story we hear about is a healing of a man named Aeneas. So in 932, uh, it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, so he's just kind of going all over, uh, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So we're about uh, 15 miles. Here's the the mile marker. We're about 15 miles or so from the city of Jerusalem. 
There he found a man named Aeneas who was bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. So just like this really quick story, uh, Peter's out and about. He comes across a man named Aeneas. He's paralyzed. He's in bed. Uh, Peter says, hey, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Well, that's a nice little story. Uh, again, it reminds us of the, the healing ministry of Jesus. This isn't Peter going out there trying to be a superstar. Uh, it's him giving what Christ has already given to Peter and has given to the church of the whole. Just like Jesus in his ministry did not heal every single person, there were still sick people in Judea, but he did heal some people. Um, it, it would be hard to say why this person, why this place, but we know that that healing ministry is continuing. And again, Peter says, it's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who's doing this. This action is a part of the good news of what Jesus is doing in this time, in this place. So all the people here, um, again, they, they know this confirmation that this is real, that he's doing this in Jesus's name. He's told others about Jesus. And now we know that this Jesus has this power, this power over health and the human bodies that he can heal people. So uh, the message goes out. It's con confirmation that builds up the church, but he's not done. He's continuing to move along. And as he goes, the next city uh, along the way is the city of Joppa. And there in Joppa is a city, uh, sorry, is a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So Tabitha is Aramaic, Dorcas is Greek, but both of those are the same word, the same name, which in English is gazelle. So that's, that's her name. Well, you know, whatever. Um, the interesting thing about this is Tabea. Tabea and Tabitha are, are the same name. The, the, it's, Tabea is like a shortened form of it. So when we talk about our Tabea society, this is, this is what it is named after. This is who it is named after. It's named after this particular woman here in Acts 9. Well, why would we name a, a group after her? What's so special about her? Well, let's find out. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. 
and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So what's so special about this Tabitha? Okay, she's raised from the dead. That, that makes you one of the, a few uh, good works. Good, yeah, she, she was devoted to charity, to helping out, and it seems probably especially widows, that, that there are other widows who are gathered around her, which probably means that they probably had that very close connection. Why would they have that close connection? could have been that they were family, or it could be because they were recipients of these acts of charity. Remember, widows are one of those class of people who especially deserve charity and extra support, because in that society, if you are a widow, you're, you're without that source of, of income and protection and rights. So, they're easily trampled in society and ignored. So the early Jews, they were commended to take care of the widows and the early Christians. We've seen how they have done that. Well, it seems that Tabitha continued among that. Um, by the fact that it's not mentioned, we assume that Tabitha is also probably a widow, Uh I mean, it, it's not, but it doesn't talk about her husband or it doesn't talk about any of her family with her. It's just these, these other people part of the church. So if that's the case, then not only is, is she showing charity to the widows, but, but she herself is one of them, um, which probably means she's not extremely well-to-do, but with the little she has, She's giving a lot. Kind of reminds you of the story of the widow uh, putting those mites into that temple treasury. The one interesting thing is that they are preparing her body. So she is dead, but they washed her and they laid her in an upper room. Uh, ancient burial practices of preparing the body, this, this was a burden because to prepare a body we think it's gross or whatever like that. No, it, it would be expensive to buy the, the spices or the oils and whatnot to prepare the body for the body to be laid out. And that she's in an upper room. Again, we have to, we're trying to figure out sociologically what's going on. It may or may not be her upper room. The, this may be somebody else's upper room. They came and prepared her body because, again, we don't hear about other family members. So somebody else has to take on that social cost of preparing her body. Again, that's a burden, but it seems that the devotion and love for this woman is shared by a lot of people. Because not only are they doing this prepare, uh, preparation for burial, but it's people who hear about Peter being in Lydda, which is a city nearby, that they're like, oh, let, let's go get Peter and tell him too. I don't know, but I don't necessarily think that they wanted to get Peter because Peter could like bring her back to life. I, I really think it was just part of 
hey, we're, we're all family. We're all together. Peter would have wanted to know this woman. Peter would want to come and to, to, you know, thank the Lord for her life and her ministry. It is possible that they're like, let's get Peter so he can raise her from the dead. But nobody seems prepared for what happens when Peter shows up. So they, they don't seem prepared for like, yeah, we knew all along that this is what was going to happen. We get Peter here, he'd raise her, she, he'd raise her from the dead, and everything would be uh, uh, good. Instead, we see uh, another similarity. So just like with the story of a man who is paralyzed, we have stories in the Gospels where Jesus goes to somebody who is paralyzed on a mat and says, get up, pick up your mat and go. Peter does that. Well, Jesus has also raised people from the dead. And there's this very interesting correspondence of the, the words here. So we have a story in Jesus of Jesus's ministry where he is gone to a little girl who has died. And he says to that girl, and this is in Mark's gospel, right? Uh, he says to her, Talitha Kumi. And Mark like gives us the, this is Aramaic. These are the words that he says to her in that exact language. The words mean little girl. I say to you, get up. Talitha Kumi. Peter's words here, if he spoke Aramaic, which was, you know, the common language. And this woman's name is given in Aramaic is Tabitha. Get up is the kumi part. Tabitha is her name. What does he say to her? He says, Tabitha, arise, get up. Tabitha, kumi. Talitha kumi, Tabitha kumi. So Peter's very words are, again, an echo of Jesus's own ministry gift that Peter has is, is not his. It is Jesus working through him. It is that authority and power, not just over sickness, but over death and life itself. So Peter clears the room and he prays. What do you think Peter was praying about? So this is right before he tells her to get up in her eyes. It's in verse, what, 40? Uh, he put them outside and knelt down and prayed. Luke doesn't tell us what he prayed about for. What do you think he's praying about or for? For help. For, help? for the Spirit? Thank, uh, thank the Lord for her life. Thanking the Lord for her life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know if Luke ever talked to Peter and, you know, asked him that question, but uh, your your imagination kind of runs wild. And one of the commentators I read, it was sort of like, "So, <laughs> Thy will be done, Lord. What 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 is Thy will? You know, are you are you are you done with this woman? Did you call her home to?" To, to be with you, or is there more? Is, is there something else, and you want me to do what you did for your friend Lazarus or for that little girl? Um, because it's after he prays that the miracle takes place. You know, Peter had seen Jesus raise others and it established 
not only use his authority, but that he was from God. Mm -hmm. I would think that maybe he would be thinking this. Uh, Done, you've done this before mm -hmm. in order to bring glory to yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a way that we can bring glory to you? Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, it, and it is about bringing glory to Jesus. It's sort of like um, the story of feeding of the 5,000, right? Jesus does the miracle. Uh, he prays and blesses the food, the loaves and the fish, but it's the disciples who are doing the work, right? They're going out and keep giving out food and keep giving out food and there's there's more, there's more, there's more. And here is this one of those instances where you, are you calling me to, to perform a miracle here? Um, and the answer seems to be yes, because what happens is he says to that woman, Tabitha, arise. And the word arise uh, or get up, uh, same verb here in both stories of healing, is connected to the same verb of Jesus's own getting up, resurrection, being raised up. So again, the connection of this language of, of getting up, arising, connection to Jesus's own resurrection, and because it's through his resurrection that we have that gift, that this is a foretaste of what eternal life is like when there is no sickness to rob us of life, no death or anything like that. So these are kind of like little stories. They're, they're not what the big thing is going to be about, but we just hear about this. And again, it causes your imagination to like, how many more stories were there like this that Luke sort of skips over because he's not telling us every single story. He's trying to advance how the gospel gets out even to the Gentiles. But before that, we have these wonderful stories of how the people were blessed. And you can see why the church was built up when, when this kind of power and ministry, not just by word, but by deed is seen among you. You know that what they're saying this counts. This is real. This is important. This is true. And we want to be about that. And as Jesus, as Peter follows um, Jesus's example, the reaction in both places is people turn to the Lord. People believe in the Lord. They're giving glory to Jesus. So Peter continues to put the emphasis on the right thing. Okay. That transitions us to the story of Cornelius himself. I'm not going to go through all of the steps of the story because I think this is one that we're a little bit familiar with and have, have heard, uh, if not in Sunday school, occasionally in church. But the big thing is we have Cornelius, who's a centurion, so a Roman uh, captain. He's, in, he's a part of the military. He's part of the Roman Empire. And he's a devout man. It seems from the language that what that's saying is he's a Gentile, not a Jew, but somebody who believes that there's only one God, who, who gives sacrifices, memorials to God, but he would still be considered a Gentile because if he wants to be a Gentile who has become a Jew, there's one really important step that has to happen. Circumcision. And it, it, it he did not go that far for whatever reason. That doesn't necessarily seem to be a, a knock against him, but everybody knows and he would know that 
in the big scheme of things, yes, he worships one God. Yes, he believes in the same God, but he's a Gentile at the end of the day. He's not, Jews would not consider him a Jew. They would not bring him into the, the holy places of the temple. He could go on the very outskirts of it, the court of the Gentiles, but that's as far as it's going to go. Nevertheless, he does seem to have a good reputation among Jews. So among Gentiles, they might say this Cornelius guy, he's not so bad. Still a Gentile, but he does a lot of good things for, for Jews, for the Lord. And so they're kind of all right with this. Well, Cornelius is there in his hometown of Caesarea. This is like the Roman um, capital of this province. So our good friend Pontius Pilate, this would be like, his headquarters. This is where the big Roman garrison is. This is, you know, Gentile territory. Jews can go in Caesarea, but this is, this is not a place where uh, a, a Jew would have a lot of fun because the Gentile presence is just there and it's in your face all the time. Cornelius has this vision. And the vision is about this man that he has to call, Peter. And, and Peter is not in Caesarea right now. He's down in Joppa. But send, send Peter and have him come up. And while that's going on, he then sends a couple of his guys. Uh, we learn about three people that go down to Joppa to find Peter. Peter, meanwhile, is going to the upper room, uh, the roof part of one of the houses that he's staying at. He's staying with this man, Simon the Tanner, which is really interesting because a tanner is not somebody that has beds of light where people come to work on their skin tone. They didn't have tanning salons back then. Tanning is a process of what? Yeah, it is of treating the skin, but it's of getting leather from an animal. So if you are a tanner, your trade is in dead animals. You can't have leather without dead animals. And this is a really interesting place for Peter to be staying because as an observant Jew, being around dead animals, blood, is kind of like not cool. It's, it would make him unclean, ceremonial unclean, and, and so he couldn't then associate with other people. And so the fact that he's there tells us Peter's maybe changed his mind or wavering on these clean and unclean rules or overlooking them. Some, something's going on because Peter shouldn't be comfortable staying at this man's house stay at some other person's house, but not the guy who deals with dead animals. That, that's just, there's something going on there. While he's there praying, he goes up and there's a vision that comes to him, a, a vision sent by God. This white sheet comes down from heaven and it's filled with all sorts of animals. It's a lovely picnic. The only problem is that the animals that are there are not just the clean animals, those that Jews were supposed to eat, but they're also unclean animals. We could go to Leviticus 11. I'm not going to right now, but a Leviticus 11, you write that down. That's kind of your list of this animal's clean, this animal's unclean. Don't eat this one, do eat this one. Uh, anyway, what he sees are all different kinds. And Jesus says to him, chow down, bro. 
I made you a feast. It's lovely. Eat it. And Peter's like, no, those are unclean animals with clean animals. I could eat maybe some of those, but I can't, I can't eat all of those without distinction. Broccoli. Broccoli. No, just, just the meat. And uh, this happens. It happens first time, second time, a third time. And Peter's left kind of wondering, okay, that was really weird, but this is from the Lord. What, what am I supposed to do? Like, am, am I doing all of this wrong? And again, the context is just bizarre because he's already at the tanner's house. So why, why is he putting up a, a, a fight about these clean and unclean rules when he seems to already be kind of applying it in one area of his life, but not so much in another? Well, while he's pondering this and figuring this out, finally those men from Cornelius get down to Joppa and they come in and they're looking for Simon, not Simon the Tanner, but Simon who is called Peter. And Peter comes down and I think things are starting to click. So what is it that helps him make the jump? from, okay, there's this weird vision that I saw of clean and unclean animals to now some Gentiles are here and they want me to come to a Roman soldier captain's house, another Gentile's house. This should be a no-brainer that you would say, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do that. But Peter's open to this. And not only is he open to this, but he's indicating that he's finally getting, he's catching on to what the Lord is saying. I think one of the ways that he does that has to do with the message came to him three times. And it's not just because Peter is a slow learner. He is that we've seen, Um, you know, deny me thrice, that whole thing. Uh, I think it's because three men, three Gentiles were coming to him. And <laughs> here's where the, the vision, you know, the, he's not going to eat them. Don't, don't eat them. But the point is of the vision, don't call unclean what, what I say is, is clean. Um, let me get that exact. What God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 16 or verse 15 of chapter 10. So he's perplexed, but when those three men come, I think, okay, he's struggling about clean and unclean and that vision that happened three times. And now there are three people here. I think that might have been the, the connection. We, we don't know otherwise. Why is it that all of a sudden the light bulb goes on? But it does. And so they invite him to go to uh, Caesarea. So they're going to have to travel north from Joppa to Caesarea. And so that gets us to about 23. The next day he rose and went away with them. Uh, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So 
his his bodyguards what i don't i don't know but there are other people there with peter going to see cornelius and on the following day they entered caesarea cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends so he's got like a whole congregation there at his house when peter entered cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him well that's not good don't don't worship peter Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So I ask you now, what is it that you want? What, why am I here? So Peter gets it that Jews can associate with Gentiles, that this is a breaking of a, a, a law, of a tradition that has stood for hundreds of years, but he gets it that now it, it doesn't matter. He can spend time at their houses. So again, it seems like he made part of a step when he stayed with Simon the Tanner because that wasn't something an ordinary Jew probably would have or should have done, but he did that. But he's still holding back a little bit because when he has the vision about eating the animals, he's like, whoa, wait a second, I, I still show a distinction. I make a distinction between what is clean and unclean of foods that I'm going to eat, and so I can't eat those things. But he says here that when he hears the Lord's words, don't call unclean uh, what, what he has made clean, he gets it. And so he's here to show everybody Jews and Gentiles can freely associate with one another. That in itself is a huge deal. But Peter then's like, so what do you want? Do you think he asked that question knowing what they wanted? Or do you think he's like, all right, I'm here. What's, what's the deal? Where's the next dead person you want me to raise? You know what? What do you think is going on in his mind? I think he had an idea of what was going on because it said here uh, on 19 that the, the, the spirit mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Yeah. Well, he know yeah, he knows that he's been sent for. So what's what's the Holy Spirit bringing me here for? What what is it that that we're going to do? I mean, everything else that he's done is connected to the gospel. I mean, yes, he was healing people, raising them from the dead, but that's all part of the gospel work. So if you ask me, I think Peter knew exactly what he was here to do. Is he just playing dumb or does he want to give Cornelius that chance to, you know, make that request for himself? And so when he asks that, Cornelius has the chance to explain exactly what happened, that he had this vision and that he, he sent for Peter and that he was, uh, he was, let's see, I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. This is verse 33. Now, therefore, we all, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Again, I think Peter is a known entity. 
There, there's something about Peter and his reputation that's already been about. They know that he is a witness, an eyewitness. They want to hear what he has to say. Remember Cornelius and his family, his household, they're devout. They believe in one God. They haven't necessarily made that full conversion to Judaism, but the message that Peter is giving is the fulfillment of the, the Jewish promise and hope that the Messiah has come and he is Jesus. And Cornelius is just like everybody else. Tell me about him. I want to know more about this Jesus. And so from 34 on, Peter gets the chance to tell him all about Jesus. And his message here really isn't that different from the message that was there in Acts 2 at Pentecost, that he explains Jesus, you know, that he came, his life and his ministry, his death, his resurrection, the fact that he and the apostles are eyewitnesses to this resurrection, and that this Jesus is going to return again as a judge. And so that message must go out so that those people are prepared, and that's what Peter and the other apostles, and in fact, all of the disciples are all about. He commanded us to preach to the people, verse 42, and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What's happening here is that the gospel is being preached to Cornelius, to these Gentiles. And that's an even bigger step than what has just happened. So what has just happened before this is this revelation that Jews and Gentiles can associate with one another. They can have them over for coffee and donuts. They can bring them into their homes to watch the big game. They're, they're all one. The, the, the people had divided themselves, Jews and Gentiles. But Peter's here to realize, no, that distinction isn't there. But that's not yet the really good news. The really good news is not just all people are are one, but the gospel goes to all people. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Again, that distinction that's already in place, it's free. It's available Jesus gives the forgiveness of sins to everyone. And what do you have to do? Time to go under the knife, Brother Cornelius. No, no. The, the, the normal way of, of being part of the covenant of God for a, a male is that circumcision. Here it's believe in Jesus. Faith salvation by faith. And and that faith is already given as a gift through that word that's been proclaimed. The Holy Spirit is at work. But we've said and noticed in the past that they're not always sure is the Holy Spirit really there and working um, because the Holy Spirit doesn't always show itself in invisible ways. And so what happens here now with the Gentiles, is that while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone who 
Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? As he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So the Holy Spirit's presence is shown and there's no doubt There can be no doubt. Peter doesn't just see this. The men who had come with Peter see this. And that's amazing, wonderful, good news. And the funny thing about it is that, again, as Luke is proclaiming the message, it's it's all just sort of happening while he's giving that sermon, while he's telling them the good news. Uh, Maybe Peter had an an awesome conclusion that he was going to end this. You know, he's given this talk a few times now. And before he can even get to the altar call, uh, the Holy Spirit interrupts that message and these people are speaking in tongues. This is this is amazing. And so the part at the end about, you know, should we withhold baptism from them? I think if you go back to Acts 2, baptism is like the natural conclusion, repent and be baptized, every one of you, uh, of his message. But it's like before he even got there, the Holy Spirit showed up and they're like, well, that was anticlimactic. I didn't even get to end with, you know, the final thing. We already know the Holy Spirit is present and active among them. Well, if that's the case, why even baptize them, right? Uh, If all that counts is the Holy Spirit, and they know that the Holy Spirit is present there, why even continue with baptism? Because that's a part of what the Lord had commanded them to do, to, to baptize and to teach, to teach and to baptize. And circumcision, which was sort of the big thing, which, you know, that was the initiation and brought them into the covenant. Well, that old covenant has been fulfilled. There's a new covenant now. And in this new covenant, the gift of baptism is given. It's given not just as an outward sign, like circumcision was, but an actual way that the Lord conveys his Holy Spirit and forgiveness. Yes, they have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's gifts keep on giving. So Peter here and his friends, they they can't deny what's happened. And you would think that with this, Everything is happily ever after, right? That they know about what's going on, that the Lord has shown definitively that the gospel goes to Jews and Gentiles. It goes to everybody. And everybody can be a brother or sister in Christ through that word proclaimed, through the gift of baptism. But that's not what happens. What happens in chapter 11 is that people back in Jerusalem, oh boy, they're going to love this news uh, that, that it's not just about us Jews, it's about the Gentiles as well. So at the beginning of chapter 11, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, and he tells that story again of everything that had happened. So all the other apostles at the beginning of 11, they've been kind of traveling around too, it sounds like. But when they hear about what's going on, they're like, 
send word, let's get back to headquarters, we need to talk about what's going on, we need to make sure that we all understand this, and there's a specific group, the circumcision party, those that believe all Gentiles can be a part of the church, but to be a part of the church, they have to first become Jews. That's what the circumcision party is going to stress. They have to follow the Jewish way of life in order to be a Christian. So it doesn't go, I'm a Gentile. I can become a Christian by believing in Jesus. They would say, I'm a Gentile. I must first become a Jew and follow all of those old covenant ways of life. And then I will also then be able to receive the good news of Jesus. And Peter is there to say, that middle step, that's... That's not the gospel. That's not what our Lord is commanding us to do. And when they all hear, they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That There's still going to be this group, the circumcision party, that they're going to work their way back in, like uh, a little leaven in the, in the lump of bread. But for right now, when people hear Peter's testimony, it seems like they get it. They get it and they rejoice. So this little section is profound. Um, to us, it's just like, okay, the, the gospel went out to another group of people, whoopee. But again, in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses to all people. And this includes the Gentiles, but they didn't go to the Gentiles, did they? For the first, what, eight chapters, it was... This is the gospel for the Jews. It came out of the Jews. It's for the Jews. And it's only here where the light bulb goes on. Uh Uh-uh. And it's not a light bulb of their own doing, even. It's Jesus coming and saying and making this known to them. You're on the wrong path, guys. This is for all people. And from here on out, the book of Acts is, is changed. The whole course of what Luke has been charting, we're going to break out of this map. We're not going to be in Jerusalem, Judea, and any of those areas. The word's going out. And it's going out in such a way that people know what is necessary for us to be saved. Believe in Jesus. Repent. Be baptized. This is for everybody. It's not become a Jew. It's Just hear this gospel, believe. And that shakes the church up. It shakes the world up. But that's where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, And they were. They were God's chosen people, but they were a light for the Gentiles. And, and they, they, they always thought, you know, we have to make them become like us and not, what, what were they the chosen people for? The chosen people that salvation would come through them. And even their salvation was not a salvation of and by works. It, it was God made a covenant with us to, to bless us and to bless the world. But um, sometimes we're not that different, right? We're, we're here. We're the chosen ones. We're the special ones. But the burden on our hearts, it's the same burden that should be on, that was on the early church of, it's not just for us. It's, it's a message that Jesus is coming back and is the judge of the living and the dead. 
love and compassion would say, we want that message to get out. Um, and the cost is not always going to be one that we like to pay because you could be rejected, you could be mocked, made fun of, lose your social status, but what we're going to find out is that those apostles, those first witnesses, they're ready to spend it all because that message is that important. All right, so we made it through. Uh, what I wanted to cover, there's a few interesting things I might have written down on the notes there. Um, but that gets us through a big part of Acts. We're not halfway through yet, but like thematically, this this is the big turning point in the book of Acts. And from here on out, it's it's shooting out of this new hope and promise that this message is for everybody. And so with even greater intensity and purpose, we're going to hear about that message getting out. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll resume. Uh, We'll finish off 11 and uh, do a little bit of chapter 12 next week. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.